0: I think about this all the time. If I have to spend the rest of my life in prison for a crime I didn't commit, I need the world to know what happened and how it happened.
1: Injustice Anywhere presents Snow Files, the wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 19. Jamie takes the stand. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. The next two episodes are a two-part series discussing Jamie's testimony with Jamie. These episodes will be primarily a question and answer session for Jamie, so we will not be doing a regular Q&A at the end of the show. We invite you to ask questions in the Facebook discussion group, and we'll be happy to respond. In our first segment, we have one overarching question, what is it like to be on trial for your life?
2: Jamie, do you remember testifying?
0: Yeah, I I do. I do remember testifying. I mean, uh, you know, it's one of those things uh, most people never do it in a lifetime. I I did it once, and that's just something that has always stuck out in my mind the whole time.
2: Why did you testify? I mean, Susan didn't testify in her trial, and that seemed like a good formula, and everybody always says... That it's not a good idea for a defendant to testify. So, so what made you decide to testify? I
0: think that the strategy to begin with was to follow the, the footsteps of, of Steve Skelton. Susan went to trial first. My attorney, uh, Pat Riley, sat in on her case. The reason being, according to them, was we get a trial run here, you know, we get to, we get to see whether, uh, you know, his strategy works or not follow behind him. So I think that's what the strategy was, and you're right. You normally don't want to call the defendant if you, if, if you don't want to, but by the time you know I had to testify, Pat and Frank had botched the case up so bad that I mean, I, I had to testify. There was no one else. I mean, before we even started trial, they got all my witnesses banned for failing to provide a witness list to the state you know ahead of time so the judge struck all my witnesses down it basically came down to the point where it was my word against everyone you know it was my word against every single witness in the case and i had no choice i had to testify
2: what was the conversation like between you and your attorneys did they say jamie we don't recommend that you testify. What were the warnings? Did they warn you, or did they say?
0: No, no, they they didn't give me any warnings. They were like, "You're gonna have to testify." You know, they they didn't ask me if I wanted to testify. They didn't. You know, they were just basically they just said, "Hey, you know, you're you're uh, you're the last person. You know, you're gonna have to testify. You're gonna have to get up here and uh, deny all this shit." They basically told me I didn't have any choice. If I didn't testify, I was going to get convicted. It was almost along the same lines of, you know, the discussion we had when I was freaking out about the fact that they couldn't call the witnesses that we had ready to testify in the first place. It was just basically, it, it, it was Frank and Pat telling me, look, you know, you're up. You know, we're going to put you on the stand in the morning. You're going to have to testify. You know, you're the only one that can rebut these charges against you. And that's basically what it came down to at that point. It was my word against everybody else. And it came to that point because they didn't follow any of the footsteps that, that Steve Skelton forged for them. I mean, he was a great attorney. He got a not guilty verdict. They didn't follow any of his footsteps. They turned in the, the witness list too late. They didn't lay the foundation for any of the witnesses that were barred by the earlier ruling by the courts. They were, you know, they were barred. So there were other witnesses that could have testified had they have laid a proper foundation for them. So they just basically let me know the night before, uh, and uh, you know, I was going to have to testify. They didn't prepare me at all, either. By the way, I mean, I had no clue. The next morning, when I got on the stand, I had no idea—not, not, not one heads up, not a clue of of what was getting ready to, you know, be asked of me. I had no idea what they were going to ask me. Which, you know, I, I've always felt like. It didn't matter. I didn't need to know ahead of time what what they were going to ask me because I was telling the truth, you know. And I've always I've always said, you know, as long as I tell the truth, I'm I'm good. I'm going to tell the truth. They'll never be able to say, aha, you lied right here, you know. As long as you're telling the truth, you don't have to worry about someone uh, making you out to be a liar. So I mean, that's what I did.
2: So you're telling me they basically said that you had to testify. And then they, they failed to prepare you for that testimony. Uh, there was no strategy involved with your testimony whatsoever. There was no focus. This is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to go. Nothing.
0: Nothing. Did you Nothing. ask? I mean, he,
2: did you ask them? Did you uh, say, you need, I mean, do we need to prepare for this? Or did you even know?
0: No, I mean, I, I didn't know. I, look, at, at, by, by that point in my trial, I was crushed, basically, by the way it was going. I mean, everything that I was afraid of, pre-trial, that I was complaining of to the judge pre-trial about these guys not being prepared, and we, you know, was, was uh, uh, coming to fruition right, right before my eyes, and I. At that point, you know, I, I just was going with the flow. I mean, he, you're telling me I have to testify. I, you know, if I don't testify, there's no way I'm going to win. Then I have to testify.
2: They told you you're just going to have to get up there and rebut. I mean, did you say? Are you kidding me?
0: I mean, uh, what was I that? Mean, like? Yeah, when he, yeah, when he, when they were like, you know, you're going to have to get up there and rebut these witnesses, and I'm like you know, if you would have laid the foundation properly, if you would have turned the witness list in properly, it wouldn't be my word against everybody. But now I guess it's me against everybody, right? And uh, and I remember Frank Pitzler going, yep. Just like, yep. You know, and, 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 and that's what it was. I mean, it you know, it it, it, uh, it came down to, you know, it was me against everybody. And, I mean, as you go through these witnesses and as we've gone through these witnesses, you know, there were multiple witnesses for every single person who got up and testified against me. There were other people ready to testify and either, either people to testify and rebut their testimony or records to rebut their testimony. And not only did they not use the records, they didn't use the people. So yeah, he was just basically like, you're gonna have to get up there and rebut these people. You know, it was a heated exchange, but you know, I mean, uh, I had to do it. Right before I testified, I asked Frank Pitzel, what if I tell the jury about the fact that I took and passed the polygraph? What do you think would happen? And Frank Pitzel said, it'll cause a mistrial and we'll have to do this all over again. And I had the copy of my polygraph exam in my pocket when I was on the stand. And uh, I swear to God, I just kept thinking about pulling it out, holding it up, and just telling the jury and everybody in the courtroom, this is a. This is a copy of the polygraph test that I took and I passed. They don't want you to know about that. I should have caused the best trial. I should have done it. I just, in that moment, I just always believed that, you know what? I was at home, you know, with my wife and my kids sitting on the living room couch when this this crime happened. There's just no way that this jury is going to be able to find me guilty for taken somebody's life when I was clear across town all these people saying that I I said I did it just didn't that's not going to meet the the state's burden in my mind I just believed it, it wasn't going to be enough and now I know I should have I should have not only had that copy in, in my pocket I should have made copies for all the jury and just got up took it over their handed it to them I, I just
2: did you look at the jury? Did you look them in the eyes? Did you look at the family, the victim's family, out there while you were testifying? I mean, this must have been crazy.
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I I made eye contact with the jury. Every single question and answer that uh, was, was asked of me, I looked and I look right at the jury and told them. I looked right at them. I, I felt like I was having a... Uh, You know, a a conversation with them, you know, an honest, an honest, uh, uh, you know, communication with them. You know, it doesn't mean anything now, but I do remember uh, when I got off of the stand, Pat and Frank and I went in the back and they were both like, that was the best testimony of of any client I've ever had. They were both like that. That was unbelievable. And, And I don't know if they were bullshitting me, if they were just shining me on. But they seemed sincere. You know, I, I put a lot of hope at that moment in that I had, I had gotten the truth across to the jury, but clearly I didn't.
2: I don't know if it was that so much as it was the sheer volume of people that you had to defend yourself against. Well,
3: Anybody,
2: you any know, average person is going to look and go, that many people can't be lying. They had nothing. They had none of the evidence that we have now.
0: You're right and that that was a major part of, you know, that was a a really disgusting part of my case and, and and the the my testimony and the cross-examination by the state is that they were in possession of all of the stuff that I needed to show that what I was saying on the stand was true. You know, and they had they had withheld so much evidence that would have corroborated what I was saying. And uh, that to me is, uh, that's the worst part of the case is to me personally, is that it was not accidental. Just like you, you just say, you know, it's hard to believe, you know, all of these people would be lying, Well, it's also hard to believe that you just accidentally didn't turn over pieces of evidence on every single lupus that you have. It's hard to believe that it That might kinda of both ways when it comes to credibility.
2: You had mentioned before about the witness list and putting the witness list there in time. What what exactly was going on with that?
0: Pat Riley had told me that we didn't have to tender a witness list to the state until we were picking a jury. That's what he said. We didn't have to put forth or I sure know different now But I didn't then They had a hearing Before it was time To start picking a jury Like it was Maybe two days Filed. The only thing, the only thing I was in charge of filing in my case were the complaints against my attorneys before we even got started to go to trial. I mean, when was I supposed to uh, submit a, a witness list to the state or to, to the court? You know, what I mean that was their job. They, if they knew that we were running late on putting in this witness list, they should have done something about it. You know what I mean? But, but, but they didn't, and uh, Charles Reiner tried to blame it on me. I didn't have no control over that.
2: So how many motions did you file before you even started the trial? You were writing letters to the judge. Is that, is that what it was?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you would call it a, a motion. I, I, I may have titled the letter like that, but yeah, I mean, I, I was writing the judge and telling him that uh, I, I didn't think they were ready. You know, we had a little hearing in, in court about it. But yeah, I I knew, you know, that they weren't ready before we even started trial. I remember two things still to this day that have kind of stuck out in my mind, right? Is one, I had a picture of each one of my kids in my hand as I was testifying. You know, because that was my, that was my motivation. They were with me and I, uh drew my strength from my kids you know from the love that I had and and, and have always had for my kids you know I got my strength from them I, I, I remember that and then I also remember that the shoes I had on were like two sizes too small and they were like really freaking tight on my feet <coughs> and it hurt <laughs> they were really nice they were really nice shoes Maureen Kevin got me a she was a mitigation expert for the death penalty trials assistance division. And, uh, she got me a real nice suit. And I mean, the shoes were tight, you know? I mean, they were nice, but they were also tight as in uh, my feet hurt. So, I remember that. Those those are the two things that really, really stuck out in my mind, you know, during, during my testimony. And I remember looking out over, uh... You know, the courtroom was packed full of people, and it was probably the most surreal and unbelievable thing I've ever experienced in in my entire life.
2: Near the beginning of your testimony, the state put forward a motion in limine regarding Kevin Shaw's testimony in relation to you telling him that you had hid someone who committed a murder in an attic. So the judge ruled... But he said, I will say this, I have no clue why he has to or we have to violate an impeachment rule to have him describe the conviction. I think everything up to the conviction is admissible. I don't think he can ever be crossed about a prior, and I think there was only one objectionable question. That is when you asked him whether or not he was actually convicted of obstructing in that case. Then later on, Bernard stated, I will make reference to pleading guilty to that incident and not make reference to the charge or the conviction. And it seems like it would have been better to state the charges of obstruction because it seems like it was left open-ended for the jury to speculate it was a much harsher charge than what you actually received. And I'm not quite sure what that motion was about. Do you have any any insight on that?
0: No, I, I really don't. I mean, I I, I agree. I, I think that um, it was framed up in a way that the left of the jury hanging with a big a big question mark, wondering what it was, and and all of that. And I think you're right. I think probably would have been better off had we just just told him, you know, exactly uh, what the deal was. And I think later on in my testimony, you'll see that you know, when I didn't make reference to the fact that they did dismiss those earlier charges, that's when Reiner lost his mind.
2: So they went on to talk about the uh, arrest in Missouri one of the questions was, now at the time you were talking with Agent Bernardini and Detective Thomas, would it also be fair to say that at that time you knew that you didn't commit the murder? And your answer was, absolutely. And the question, and you knew at the time that you were at home with your wife. And you said, that's correct. And you knew you had a cast on your arm at the time of the murder. Yes, sir. And so, with all those knowings in mind, you asked the officer, what's going to happen to me if I tell you what I know about the murder? And you said, I never said that. And they said, so when the officers testified that they were not being truthful, is that your testimony? And you said, my testimony is that when they were questioning me and they were both, you know, going... Um, a lot different than they were on the stand when they when they had me in the interrogation room They were both asking me questions about separate crimes, and I believe they were attempting to confuse me So they were trying hard to get you to say that you were asking for a deal to cooperate in this murder case What was that like? I mean was that did you have all of the information about? the testimonies and everything the time that you testified?
0: The focus of that interview was not the Clark homicide. The focus of the interview was uh, for what I'd been arrested for. And that statement, you know, what what if I knew something about the murder, what kind of a deal could could I get, is is a complete, total lie. Never happened. And I think there's some indications that would would show that that what I'm saying is true. uh, Well,
2: they certainly didn't say anything about it on the police report.
0: No, they didn't say anything about it on the police report. I think, you know, I, I think there's some... some indicators that, you know, you should think about when you're thinking about that interview. Not just that they didn't say anything about that in their police report. But, um... You know, and, and this is this is exactly where Frank Pitzel and, and, and Pat Riley should have worked when they were when they were cross examining, um, you know, Russell Thomas and, uh, and, and 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 Michael Bernardini when they had him on the hand, I mean, both of these guys were members of the task force that were put together to to investigate all these cases that were going on in Bloomington. You know, so I I, I assume you're you know, you're the you're the of the crop, you're, you're the top of your class, they don't get, you know, um, they, don't, they don't put Barney Fife on the, on the task force, you know, so, you know, after this interview, what did they do with the information, right, what, what, what did they do with what they, they, they believed I had, I had given them in that, that interview since they, they decided 10 years later I had implicated myself in a, in a homicide case or that I had some sort of information or or whatnot about it, what did they do with it? They didn't do nothing. They didn't go to my sister's house, and knock on the door, looking for a a gun, um, you know, uh, clothes that matched the description, the cash drawer, none of that. They didn't go to, they didn't go to my house and, um, knock on the door and ask Tammy if, if they could come in and, and, and look around. They didn't go to her mom and Dad's house. They didn't go, um, you know, to any of my friend's house, you know, trying to, you know, track down some, I guess, some, some evidence that would corroborate what I was saying. They, they, they didn't do that. What they did was, they went to the grand jury that was investigating the case that I'd been arrested for at my sister's house and testified that those statements were about that case. They went around knocking on, on people's doors trying to get the evidence to you know, help uh, their case for, for what I'd been arrested at my, my sister's house for. So, I mean, again, all I could do was, was, was just get up there and deny that what they were saying was true. But, but had Pat and, and Frank have done their job and probably cross-examined these guys, they would have been able to expose to the jury that, you know, they didn't do anything to follow up on, on, on that interview. And they, in fact, you know, is your memory better 12 hours from now? about a conversation that you had with somebody, or is it going to be better nine, nine and a half years later? I mean, they went, you know, Russell Thomas went to the grand jury the the very next day and testified that those statements was about the case I've been arrested for, so.
2: So when they were asking you about that particular um, incident and, um, you know, is it possible that you knew anything You know, about because you kept going back and forth, you know, knew anything about the crime that you were arrested for. Um, And you answered, it is possible I was extremely scared and upset for what I had been arrested for, which was later dismissed. And this is where Charles Renard flips out. So he says, your honor, I think we have an order in, in Lemony in effect that was just violated and I would ask for the hearing outside the presence of the jury on that. <laughs> it was So what was what was that like? I mean, I have I have more, you know, that I can read on here if you want me to read it before you
0: come. Well, no, I mean, I I uh, I thought that it was important that the jury knew that they dismissed them charges against me. They they wanted to dangle you know the the forbidden fruit i guess in front of the jury you know knows okay we'll just talk and we'll nibble around the edges and we'll just we'll just let them you know know that we had something going on here but we're not going to tell them anything about it just in in an effort to try to you know basically make me look bad you know and and i, I just felt like you know what it's 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 critical I, I, these these people need to know that, that these charges were dismissed. You know, and and, uh, and that's what I did. And I mean, the, the truth is, you know, the judge told my lawyers that they couldn't say anything about it. He didn't tell me that I couldn't say anything about it. So, I did.
2: That's funny because you're, uh, because I, I think Frank actually uh, said, <laughs> or uh, Pat Riley actually said something similar when when renard started going over the order my understanding judge that the court has ordered that there be no reference to the judgment of the court with respect to those charges and goes on but then riley responds if there was such an order it was entered at the sidebar which this defendant wasn't allowed to listen to and then renard said that is not true after we have the hearing and then the court just ruled or, you know, just started asking questions, and I could see that it was getting kind of, kind of heated. Um, Can you go into that a little bit? What was, uh, what was going on there? Was he really flipping out, as it looks like, on paper?
0: Oh, yeah, he was very uh, animated and quite upset that I had, I guess, spoiled his plan to just... Leave it open-ended for the jury to just make a decision on their own. I I think he was he was very upset by that. I just felt like you know what you told me to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God, I mean that was part of the truth, and I think they needed to know it. So I told him. He didn't like it.
2: You later on said when you were talking to the judge during this time you said that is that is what i thought they were talking about i didn't realize i wasn't supposed to say anything about the charges being dismissed and i and i had the same note you know it said that they were they were okay with saying that you were arrested for something you know and it was this big deal because they had to go all the way to missouri to get you and they're hammering you with all of these questions you know, so it just becomes this big mystery. But they're also okay with saying that later on you, were, you did have charges of obstruction of justice.
0: Later. They didn't want the jury to have any information that they might be able to draw a positive inference from. You know, they wanted it all to be negative, and that's what they did. They wanted it all to be negative, and, and uh, I didn't think that was fair, so I, I told them that the charges had been dismissed, and I, and I think it was important. that you know, I mean, they they had me arrested, and, and you, you know, I was afraid when they were when they were questioning me. I knew that I had not done what they had, had arrested me for, and I knew that it was a serious charge, and that I was in a lot of trouble, and, you know, I mean, the first thing that Russell Thomas did when they picked me up in, in St. Louis at my sister's house, he walked up to me, and he looked at my chin, for a scar on my chin and he looked at my ear for an earring in my ear and and when I didn't have a scar on my chin and an earring in my ear their focus was not the Clark homicide their focus was what I'd been arrested for and that's what the you know the focus of that interview was, was all about they lied I mean they flat out came in there and absolutely lied both of them and Frank Pitzel had the sworn testimony of Russell Thomas twelve hours after that interview from nineteen ninety one that he could have just eviscerated Thomas and he didn't do it. He didn't even he didn't even try.
2: They also went in depth questioning about the cast issue. Do you want to talk about the cast issue?
0: Absolutely. I had a had a plaster. No, it was actually fiberglass. I had a fiberglass cast on my right hand from my finger to my elbow on the night of the crime. I, I absolutely did. I, I was supposed to go and have it cut off at the doctor's office. Like maybe four or five days after the murder happened, I was supposed to go back and, and they were going to cut it off and I just... I just took a hacksaw to it cut it off myself. I didn't want to go back to the doctor.
2: They also mentioned that you had
0: pins. I had two pins in my, you know, two real long pins that went, you know, in into the bone. And I went to the, the doctor maybe a week or two before the murder. They took pins out. But they left the cast on, and then um, and then I was supposed to come back and have the cast taken off. You know, once they got the hands out, I just you know I just cut the cast off myself. I left it on until the day that he told me to leave it on. Until I left it on there until then. So.
2: Well, they asked you about a picture that was taken, and they were saying that it was Susan Powell took it, and that it was at her trailer. And they were like, "Is this your car in the driveway?" And it was like a. You said, "All I can see is a windshield." I just didn't understand what the, what they were going with. You said that because the picture was of a temporary cast that they gave you at the emergency room, and you thought yeah, that's the that
0: night picture. that I went to the emergency room, they just put a, a temporary, um, you know, like a, a it wasn't even it was. It was temporary, you know. They, they they gave me that until I could get in to see the doctor for him to actually do the surgery to uh, put the pins in my hand. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's what that was, but that was not the uh, the cast that they put on there. It stayed on for I, I don't know how long it stayed on. I, I would guess it was on there for like maybe six weeks or so.
2: So basically, you're saying that if you would have had the cast removed by the doctor, then it could have been confirmed that you had a cast on your arm, and that uh, it was your right hand, and that that would have been too weak to sit there and rob rob a gas station and shoot somebody twice. So as we come to a close, is there anything that you'd like to add, or close with in this uh, part one episode.
0: Every single person in this country deserves at least a fair trial. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you're charged with. Whether you're charged with DUI or if you're charged with the worst crimes imaginable. You at least deserve a fair trial. My, my younger sister has served three tours of duty and in the Middle East put her life on the line for the freedoms that every single person in this country, you know, they get, you know, that they, that they experience, that, they're, that, that is given to them. You know, she put her life on the line for everybody's freedom and for every single person to enjoy at least a fair trial and justice. And it's just terrible when you don't even come close to getting a fair trial. I didn't even come close to getting a fair trial. And it's really disgusting that all these judges, all the way down the line, all they're doing is rubber stamping it, rubber stamping it, rubber stamping it. Nobody wants to just stand up and say, wait a minute, this wasn't fair. And that's just the part for me, I mean, it's a horrible thing to be in prison for the rest of my life for something I didn't do. But what's even worse is that I didn't even have a fair chance. I didn't get a fair trial. You wanna lock me up for the rest of my life for something I didn't do? At least give me a fair trial. Make it fair. You know, and that's that's what's really been hard.
2: If it for was me. a fair trial, you probably wouldn't be locked up the rest of your life though.
0: Oh, they would have never been able to drive me had it been fair. <laughs>
1: we invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated.
3: In episode 19, we heard what it's like to be on trial for your life. Jamie explained why he testified, how unprepared his legal team was, where he found his strength, and how he assumed if he told the truth, he was good. Jamie's lawyer said his testimony was the best of any client they ever had. Jamie had a lot of hope, but one against all wasn't enough for the jury. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Want to join the Jamie Snow support team? Become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just go to snowfiles.net and click on Be My Patron on Podbean. All donors will have our undying appreciation and acknowledgement on the show. The highest tier donors will be invited to host a Q&A segment. Funds are used to cover our administrative costs and to keep Jamie in the media. Jamie's self-defense testimony was 157 pages long. He addressed every single witness we discussed so far and reported the exact same facts 20 years ago in the same detail he has on this show. There's a lot more to share. That's next time on Snow Files.